looked at real issues. He's asked the real right questions about lawsuits. Did you say you were run out of two insurance companies? The real work of slugging it out in the emergency department bothered you. Because we're unduly afraid of being sued. Everybody sucks off this system. Hey, boys and girls, children of all ages. Greg Henry here, along with Rick Bucata, and we have again today in the October issue of Risk Management Monthly, we've got a great guest with us. We've looked at real issues. He's asked the real right questions about lawsuits and what they cost. We can't wait to get started. Rick, why don't you uh, begin this process and uh, bring in our guest? Well, you know, I do survey the literature, and I saw a paper in the uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, from uh, Darian and uh, his two co-authors, uh, Sue Chan and Mark Dorfman. They looked at an insurance company database um, focusing on what does it cost uh, in the way of expenses with regards to if you lose a suit or you don't lose a suit in emergency medicine. So, uh, Darian, welcome aboard. Uh, I really, really appreciate you're coming uh, uh, onto the recording with us, uh, given the fact that you've had about 12 hours notice. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, uh, this is really kind of interesting. Um, so I saw the paper. I thought, geez, it'd be nice to talk with the author. I went onto the uh, website of this hospital, got the number of the emergency department, and apparently you have several emergency departments in your in your sphere of influence there. And I just called the ER and said, it's Dr. Cohen there. And the, and the nurse said, oh, sure, hold on a second. Out of, out of the blue. So this was meant to be. It, it was karma, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, karma, right. Darren, you are MDJD. When did you do what did you, what did you do first? That is correct. I, I did medical school first in, at UC San Francisco and graduated and did a residency in emergency medicine at University of Illinois in Chicago and was practicing as an emergency physician on faculty at U of I for several years and had already, always had an interest in, in medical legal aspects of medicine and went back and got my JD at Loyola and did that uh, 10 years ago. And, and that's because uh, you didn't like working for a living, Darian? Are you, <laughs> explain it. See, I mean, so the real work of slugging it out in the emergency department bothered you, so you got a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, <laughs> I've still full-time practice emergency medicine, but I am on faculty in Resurrections Emergency Medicine Residency Program, and it's you know it's given me a niche. Uh, I, I lecture on medical legal topics, risk management, ethics, um, chart reviews. So I've enjoyed that a lot, tremendously, and uh, and I've also done some consulting work, and it led to this uh, review article, which I have to give my credit to my colleague, Shu Chan, who's uh, been practicing emergency physician for over 30 years and also is a statistician, and Mark Dorfman, who's board certified in both emergency medicine and internal medicine and is the director of our emergency medicine residency here at Resurrection. Oh, you had to put his name in there and kiss up. <laughs> absolutely. Mark, absolutely. And he absolutely nothing to this <laughs> Is his, his his middle initial isn't C, is it, for co-author or something like that? <laughs> he actually was the connection with ISME and got this whole thing rolling, so he definitely deserves credit. <laughs> hey, um, Darren, do you want to go through uh, some of the things that you did and found uh, in your paper? Sure, absolutely. So we, we had access through this connection to ISME, which is the emergency Illinois State Medical Interinsurance Exchange, 
um, which is the largest insurer of physicians in Illinois and, and insured over 400 emergency physicians during the 10-year period we collected data, which was from 1995 to 2004. So we had access to all of their claims filed against emergency physicians, what happened to those claims, how long they took to close, and what kind of expenses were generated by the claims, and what kind of payouts uh, were generated by these claims. So we reviewed this for the 10-year the period, and the most significant findings we found were that <clears throat> over this 10-year period, these 400-plus emergency physicians, there were 250, 200 lawsuits filed uh, to, uh, with the ISME insurance company. And of those 200 lawsuits filed, 39 resulted in an in indemnity payout for a successful plaintiff's action of, of just under 20%. So the physician was successful in defending the case just over 80% of the time, which is Darian, other studies. Let's, let, let, me, uh, let me interrupt for just one second so that our members understand what we're talking about. 450 pieces of paper were filed that means for, for those listening who are not attorneys or not in the process, there was some sort of notice of intent to file, which most states require some kind, but they only followed through during the introductory period, and I don't know what it is in Illinois, probably six months, but only half of them, a little less than half of them, actually proceeded to a summons and complaint. Is that the way you would put it? That is exactly correct. So there were 450 files, filed claims by plaintiffs, and 200 proceeded to lawsuits. And the other 250 still generated various expenses on behalf of the insurance company to look into the cause of action, but it never proceeded to actual lawsuit. There were 200 actual lawsuits served. Well, what you've also told us is there's about 20% in which there's an indemnity payment but what you don't tell us is, was that indemnity, pay, indemnity payment arrived at pre-trial or was it actually won in court? Because I think what most of our, our listeners don't quite understand is, at least my experience over the last, since 1976, has been about 10% to 12% of cases against emergency docs will actually be tried. The rest are settled in some way, shape, or form. And that's correct. And we actually did not have access to the specific data of whether this indemnity was paid out after a case actually went to court or prior to court. We just had the insurance de-identified database that just showed that an indemnity was paid on behalf of the uh, physician. So we don't have the information. There were 39 cases that where an indemnity was actually paid with an, a median amount of $220,000. But whether that occurred before trial or after trial was not available, unfortunately, from the database. Yeah, I think, I think what our listeners have to take out of this is the fact that we're looking at almost a 10-year period. Now, we all know that in the lawsuit business, it's hard to know when you mature a claim. So there still may be claims hanging from years past kind of thing. But Illinois is a big state. It's, it's got to have 15 million people in it, 10 years there's had, there had to have been a hell of a lot of visits to emergency department, and only 39 of them resulted in an indemnity payment, which means sometimes we're afraid of a boogeyman who's not near as big as we think he is. No, that's Actually, absolutely correct. Yeah, Actually, I think that that's really an important point because everybody keeps on referring to fear of malpractice to, to justify 
they're grossly overordering this or that or the other thing, when in fact, it's not that big a deal. You know, there's one case per 30,000 or something like, like that. Doctors win most. And we, we hide behind this all the time for um, the practice of non-evidence-based medicine because we're unduly afraid of being sued. This, if anything, should give uh, physicians solace that, in fact, there were very few claims. And the uh, median payout was, um, you know, a quarter of a million dollars. It's not that big a deal, to tell you the truth. Well, the, the big problem, Rick, is not the payout. I mean, having, having run two insurance companies, I paid a lot more money in allocated but, loss adjustment, in paying but, lawyers, in paying experts, in paying this or that, than I ever did to injured parties. Did, uh, you, it, did you say you were run out of two insurance companies? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've been kicked out of better, better, better discussions than this one, I'll tell you that right now. But, but the bottom line is, Everybody sucks off this system. Uh, Michigan did a study to say how much of the actual malpractice dollar actually ever went to an injured party, and it figured out to be 11% actually went to an injured party. Because when you take away what lawyers got on both sides and all the other grease of the system, my God, it is the most inefficient way to redistribute money ever invented it might as you might as well open an indian gambling casino if you want to redistribute money because it's about that level of science well the thrust of this paper is to show uh one of the things that you've said in the past which is to be named is to lose because uh this paper shows how much is spent by insurance companies uh independent of whether there's a settlement or not, even if the physicians win, there are some substantial dollars going out to pay um, just to process the case and get a, somebody to look at the chart and those kinds of things. And I um, think that's exactly right. There's, you know, one of the pieces in the paper show that there's $6 million in expenses generated by these 200 cases. $4 million in those expenses were to settle, to defend these successfully defended cases because there were so many more of those. And only $2 million of those dollars were necessary, were expended to defend the cases that physicians lost. So there's huge expenses that are generated even when the physician wins. And, and the paper also shows that you know, it's going to take about four years of your time from the incident to the close of the claim, whether you win or lose. So you, you know, you're dealing with the emotional toll and the financial expense, even though often physicians come out on top. Darian, I really uh, am impressed to see that you looked at how long it took to close these cases because I've not seen any studies in the past that, that uh, nailed this number. You noted it was uh, 41 months if um, there was a resolution with no payment and 52 months if there was a resolution with payment. Uh, I'm involved in a suit right now uh, as the director of our department. I didn't really commit the crime or the alleged crime. But um, now that I'm not the director and I'm basically retired from cl uh, clinical practice, we were going to shut down our um, a professional corporation. This basically says, no, 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 no. You, you might have to have this thing open for four or five years before you can feel comfortable that uh, there's nobody going to pierce your corporate veil. Rick, I, there's I think nothing that takes as much time as closing down an insurance company because there is something called the incurred but not reported. And at some point in time, particularly if it's a child, 
And uh, four of the five big losses in, uh, in Dr. Cohn's study here were, ch- were children, which means those families and that child may be filing years. And I, I don't mean just a few years. They might have, you know, 16 years or 18 years, depending on the state's involvement here and what the rules are. Um, this can get ridiculous after a while. You know, 52 months, uh, that means that most of the cases lasted longer than most of the patients. <laughs> hey, um, let's just nail the numbers. The, the median uh, cost for the insurance company was $12,000 when they won the, when the, there was no payment to the patient or their family. And it was about um, almost $30,000 when there was a payment that went to uh, the, the patient. So it, it, it just makes sense. It's going to be a lot more work to take cases that ultimately result in payments. So this kind of puts in some context what your insurance company can expect to pay out and maybe uh, it would put into some context those um, groups who are self-insured for the first, you know, half a million dollars or something to that effect, the larger groups, that this is kind of where, where it's at. Well, it uh, also, absolutely. It, it says something else, though. If you look at the time period, 1995 to 2004, what is not figured into there is an inflationary number. Because if you're doing cases today in 2012, I promise you, the defense costs are two and a half times what they were in 1995. Well, that's actually a good point because I noticed that the database, um, Darian, goes from 95 to 2004. And then the Journal of Emergency Medicine at the bottom says it accepted your paper in 2008. And then I'm wondering, well, what the heck have they been doing for the last four years with your paper after it was accepted? They've got like so many great papers that, you, you know, you had to get to the back of the it line. Did take a while. It was, it was e-published a few years back, but it did take a while to get into uh, hard paper. copy. Absolutely. Jeez. Yeah. So uh, uh, Greg, I, uh, I think, has a good point. Uh, this data is eight years old, so you need to do another another. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because we actually have uh, accessed ISME's database, and they've provided us with data from 2005 to 2010. So we're in the process of evaluating that. And the interesting thing about that is in 2005, Illinois passed uh, tort reform, and they capped non-economic damages against physicians at 500000 and against hospitals at a million dollars. So it'll be interesting to see in this time period if that had any effect on lawsuits. And then we're looking to do another study from 2010 on because in 2010, the Illinois Supreme Court overturned tort reform in Illinois and said that it was unconstitutional. So we no longer have those caps in place. So it's going to be very interesting to see going forward what uh, what the data looks like. So your papers are scheduled for the next three or four years here. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, this is a full-time job now. (laughs) <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> he's, he's found his life's calling. I got a question. Uh, when we look at our data uh, from, from our own insurance companies, two-thirds of the time, the emergency physician is sued with another physician. There are either two ER docs or there's a 
family practice doc or a surgeon or somebody else, how did your study separate this out so we know we're just looking at emergency physician problems and not something which is more complex or, or interwoven with other physicians? Well, we were reliant on ISMI's classification of what an emergency physician was. So they, if they are insuring you as an emergency physician, then you would fall under their category and we received the information. So it's ISMI's, uh, the insurance company's determination of whether they're insuring you and whether your premiums are based as an emergency physician. But whether you were primarily family practice and moonlighting in the ED, whether you were board certified or not board certified, whether you were residency trained or not residency trained. Unfortunately, all that information we did not have access to. And so these what, are we, don't, yeah, what we don't know is um, if there's three doctors named. I mean, That's this is common for us. You've called up Joe Blow, uh, surgeon on the phone, and he says, yeah, I'll see the patient. Well, he doesn't see him till the next day. Now both of you are sued. So that Absolutely. we don't know from this data. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. The other thing that was noted in the paper, um, Darian, is that um, this I, trend of naming people it, with criminal charges when the negligence is perceived to be egregious. And you mentioned a case well, that was a woman just, died uh, in, in a, right, a waiting right. room, but that could have been could have been the, um, where they could have gone to been named in a criminal case. This uh, lady, 49-year-old woman, presented to ED two hours prior with chest pain, and they, the coroner said that this was a homicide. What was the outcome of that? Well, that led to a lot of concern in the, uh, obviously, all of medical community. So the, the outcome was that the DA for that county never did press charges against anyone at the hospital, criminal charges. There was a, a civil suit, and they settled for a fair amount of money. But there was no... Uh, criminal charges ever against anyone at the hospital. But the fact that even the coroner's inquest, it was a non-binding, but that a group of lay people determined after reviewing the, the data that this was potentially a homicide and that somebody could potentially be criminally responsible because the patient wasn't brought back to the ED quick enough led to a lot of concern that oh, yeah. our, our physician's going to be facing criminal liability as well as civil liability. You see, I think that's a bunch of crap. Uh, if, if you're in criminal court, that means there's a mens rea, a guilty mind, that you did something knowingly uh, harmful to the patient. That's right. If you knew that that lady, you know, was, uh, was evil and you decided to punish her, yeah, that's a criminal act. But to then start flopping over criminal statutes to, into what has usually been civil law, I think is a very dangerous precedent. And if you want to see doctors start to do really bizarre and unusual things, just start that going. Although, haven't there been cases uh, where this has occurred? Because, frankly, I know of a case in our hospital where this uh, occurred. Uh, it was involved in an anesthesia case where it was felt that the anesthesiologist supervision was so grossly negligent that um, they went after him criminally. Now, I must admit, I don't, I don't, I don't think this fellow ever went to jail or anything like that, but uh, it was just in our little hospital. You know, the other thing is we have a, um, another paper that looked at defense claims, and this paper came out in the New England Journal April 5th of this past year. It was, the authors are from RAND. And, you know, it, was, it kept on bugging me. What the heck does RAND stand for? You know, it's like TRW. You have no idea what the heck that means. 
Yeah. Uh, so I had to look that up. Did you know this is, Greg, this is going to be cocktail conversation for you uh, for the rest of your life. Douglas Aircraft, <laughs> Douglas Aircraft Company um, in World War II uh, had a facility in Santa Monica. And part of that uh, building of airplanes, they also did uh, research and development for the government. And so they spun off in 1948 a company called RAND, uh, a nonprofit. And RAND is um, a contraction of research and development. That's where that name, that's where RAND comes from. And um, th this paper was written by somebody from RAND, USC out here, Harvard, and MGH. And they look at defense costs by specialty from the same period, uh, one, uh, 1995 to 2005, from a nationwide professional liability insurer, they looked at uh, twenty, almost twenty-seven thousand claims filed uh, against forty thousand physicians. Which brings up the point that you mentioned that some of these cases are going to involve multiple doctors. Well, that is exactly what happened here. Um, Forty-one thousand doctors involved in twenty-seven thousand claims. The mean pay uh, payment was uh, for the lawyers and the and the expert witnesses and all of this other stuff was um, twenty. Three thousand uh, dollars. It was forty-five thousand if there was a payout, and seventeen thousand if there was no payout. Now, this paper in the New England Journal has a chart listing every specialty and where they were in it. And actually, the worst in terms of payouts for um, just this legal services thing was for cardiology. They paid out eighty-three thousand dollars when there was an indemnity payout, versus about fifteen thousand when there was not. When you look at where emergency medicine f fell on this chart, which is a really nice little chart, it's it's below the median. Uh, emergency medicine was surprisingly low. Um, the costs were thirty-seven thousand dollars if there was a payout, and thirteen thousand dollars if there was not. Uh, which we always think that we're among the worst of the worst in terms of being sued and and. Uh, this paper says mm, there's a lot of people that have got a lot worse off than you do in terms of what it's going to cost if they do get sued. This uh, paper did not look into the number of suits specifically by specialty in terms of, you know, 80% of the suits were in neurosurgery and 20% were in this specialty. But I thought you know, that was interesting because it basically covers the same idea as uh, Dr. Cohen's uh, paper, and the numbers are not very far off. If you look, however, Rick, at the at the way the country is distributed with cases, uh, you know, you're you're viewing this uh, like we are doing a CBC on somebody, assuming that it was even across the entire blood pool. Well, if you look at South Dakota, emergency physicians are sued like one in every hundred thousand visits. Hey, I mean, like they just what? This was just this was just averages across the country. Sure, there's going to be differences state by state, right? And particularly if they have uh, tort reform, and uh, you know, because we we mentioned in Texas, their 2003 tort reform basically dropped the malpractice costs in half, uh, it, and so it became much uh, nicer to do business there than before. Despite the fact that the literature also said that. The doctors still order just as many tests as they ever did, and access right. no better than it ever was. By the way, the, the it is the concentration of attorneys who've got nothing better to do. If you look at South Dakota, they've got no attorneys. Uh, they got to go to Chicago to get them. Uh, if you look at Miami, Florida, uh, suit rate is 
10, 12, 15 times that against emergency physicians. And the concentration of attorneys in, in Miami is only uh, ex- exceeded by the concentration of attorneys in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, so there are certain pockets around the country where this really is worse. And we need to, we need to recognize hey, listen, that. you keep on mentioning South Dakota like we should have some kind of sympathy for them. They have become the center of oil and gas in this country, and they have so much money up there, they don't know what to do with it. Well, they they have bumper stickers that say "Freeze in the dark, you eastern bastards," and and because uh, they really do have uh, uh, money and and gas, and uh, you know they're gonna they're gonna buy themselves some camels and uh, become Saudi princes. I think they've got so much stuff. Uh, Darren, do you want to stick with us while we do the rest of this um, exercise? Sure, absolutely. You have some time? A little bit, yeah. Um, if you have to run, just let us know. Um, Greg, we were going to do some cases uh, that you were you had, and I actually found a case that I would like to do as well. And we, then we have about five or six emails that we haven't gotten to, and there's a, a kind of a, a string of consistent questions that are being uh, coming up that we'll uh, tackle. Uh, Greg, give me a case. Well, uh, I will give you a case, Rick, and and then I, I want to make sure that today we, we do an adequate thing on, on Good Samaritan because, uh, you know, the last time I did the book, the risk management book, uh, there's been a few things happen on Good Samaritan. We need to get into it. Uh, but but I want to do a case uh, that took place at Vanderbilt Hospital. Uh, this is – and, you know, I'm a uh, permanent – visiting professor at Vanderbilt. Uh, Corey Slovis and I are friends, and it's a, uh, it's a great spot, so I do a lot of medical legal talks down at Vanderbilt. Isn't that where your but, father-in-law is from, uh, hanging out? No, he's a duke. He's oh. a duke, sir. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but his son went to Vanderbilt along with my daughter. Um, in any event, this is a man claims three-day involuntary commitment was not necessary. This, this is getting into an area of emergency medicine, which is dicey, which is psych, uh, and it, it can always be a problem. And I've got several psych cases to run by you today. Uh, this plaintiff was age 60 at the time, went to the emergency room. His ex-wife had received communications from the plaintiff, which suggested suicidal ideations. Well, that's always a judgment. I mean, I'm surprised his ex-wife didn't say, yeah, go ahead and kill yourself. I mean, it's, it's odd that she got involved. But his ex-wife came home, called 911. Uh, they took him to the emergency department. He was depressed, but it was, it was difficult to say he was actually suicidal at that moment. He was evaluated by the emergency room physician, who will remain nameless at this time, and determined that she, uh, she could not send him home due to there were too many risk factors and variables. So uh, she signed off on the certificate of need for involuntary commitment. Uh, the patient was evaluated for three days, which means, you know, Sykes, they, they, they shrunk him uh, and decided that he could be okay. So now when he gets out, he brings a legal action against Vanderbilt for false imprisonment and medical negligence. Now, whether you can tell it or not on the on the over the um, over Skype, uh, my blood pressure is raised is, is sky high at this moment. But I will say this: 
that after going through the entire process, uh, the, the fact that they detained him against his will, that he'd done this or that, uh, the guess. jury found the jury found no medical negligence resulting from this action. Yeah, and it's very so, predictable. Well, the good wouldn't. guys won. And I'll tell you what, when you look at the names of some of the experts in this case, it makes me so mad I could spit. Uh, Don't do that. uh, Ooh, ooh, yeah, because that ruined the microphone. But I promise you this, that this is the kind of situation where an emergency physician can be damned if you do, damned if you don't. So do what's right. Do what you do for your brother. Because if she'd let him go home and he'd killed himself that night, do you think the family, including the ex-wife, might have been involved in the lawsuit. Don't don't even think twice about it. They would have. Okay, and occasionally got, we have to do things. Darian, what do you think about this? As uh, as I lecture to my residents, I, I, it's you, as Dr. Henry said, you've got to do what's best for the patient. You know, and and uh, I'd always rather be sued for detaining somebody than for having them go out and commit suicide. But uh, obviously, this is very frustrating. You know, as you also point out, being sued is to lose and to have to face. Four years of a suit like this and going to court, uh, you know, is not uh, anything anyone looks forward to, even though you know you've done the right thing. Especially if you can get expert witnesses who say you did not do the right thing. I mean, this is kind of like child abuse. You don't have to prove child abuse. You just have to suspect child abuse. And I think that uh, uh, acting on the side of uh, safety is probably not going to be – turned over by a reasonable jury. And I'm really disappointed, frankly, that there were emergency physicians uh, willing to take the position that this was false imprisonment. I I don't mean just an emergency doctor. I mean a big name emergency doctor. And the case here is Buckingham versus Vanderbilt Hospital, uh, Davison County, Tennessee. Uh, And and, uh, this is... Not right, in my opinion. But then again, I'm just a simple country boy. Uh, and it doesn't seem right to me when you're trying to help the patient. And, you know, the, the jury, I mean, you know, this is, uh, this is Tennessee, not New York. The jury did the right thing. And um, I'm, I'm very glad to see that we won uh, on this case. Uh, no, no question that when you're the doc who has to make a decision, it's two o'clock in the morning, you got to do something, um, do what you do for your own brother and then you're okay. And that, that's what we got to do. Uh, Hey, Greg, do you want to move on to these, um, good Samaritan cases or do you want to, do you have another case that you want to present? One more case just to, just to tell you about. And, uh, this is a, this is a case which sounds like it ought to be a Tennessee Williams uh, play. And it takes place in Louisiana, uh, where a pregnant woman, uh, six or seven months of pregnancy, is having a little nausea, a little vomiting. She calls an ambulance. Uh, the, uh, the ambulance from the Acadian Ambulance Company was transporting her to the hospital when it ran into the back of a sugarcane truck. Now, how more Tennessee Williams can this become? You know, mm-hmm. you, you, get, you, you picture somebody saying, uh, you know, uh, we got here something here in Louisiana called, uh, you know, this kind of law and that kind of law. Anyway, not only did the ambulance run into the back of this truck, it rolled over. 
So now you've got an injured pregnant woman who then, when they finally get somebody else to take her to the hospital, has gone into labor. She's had an, a, a child who's, who's uh, become asphyxiated. So they deliver a brain damaged child and she's got injuries. Um, this is the case of Whitley Lacey versus the Acadian Ambulance Service, Iberville Parish, Louisiana. And the award was $116.9 million. Um, so for those of you who are involved in EMS services, read the case. Look it up. Because uh, think about the things that you do, how fast you want to be driving. Has anybody ever saved anybody by turning on lights and flashers and going above the speed limit? In any event, these are all parts of this, uh, of this case. And again, I, I just can't wait till the movie comes out because it's, it's going to be terrific. Well, at $116 million, you got to think that this will be uh, appealed. Uh, oh, absolutely. The ability to do that. Oh, no, no. In Louisiana, they'll reduce it. There's no question about it. It's going to be reduced. But it, it, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that uh, this is EMS. Uh, this is, you know, and, and w there's a lot of assumptions we make in EMS that fast is good. We save people. We do this or that. I would point out that uh, sometimes uh, EMS does not get us any farther than just sort of doing it the usual slow safe way of transporting patients. Well, you know, we've looked at the uh, articles on uh, EMS suits, and there are very, very, very few EMS-related suits. There are these issues of um, EMS getting involved in traffic accidents and their, their employees being injured uh, with some uh, increased frequency than you would envision. But uh, that's kind of a different matter. Uh, I haven't seen really cases where patients... Uh, have been the ones who have uh, been the ones who sued, but they lights and sirens. I think you know for most of the cases, is just not a safe thing to do. Yeah, well, I don't think it changes the outcomes in most cases, and I th I think we just need to be real honest about the fact that uh, we somehow have this idea and we justify helicopter transport services saying, well, it'll get them to the place a half hour earlier. Oftentimes that's not the case, but saying, well, that's the critical half hour that'll save these people. I think those cases are few and far between. And, uh, you know, coming from a hospital where we had a helicopter crash and kill three people, um, I think, I think we need to rethink this entire thing. Darren, any thoughts? No, only that I think that these kind of verdicts feed into physicians' fear of the you know lottery lawsuit mentality that any potential case can bankrupt you uh, because you know you never know what a jury is going to return. Clearly, there may have been a liability here, but the the figure seems to be pulled out of thin air. Uh, that, well, but that's always the case. Uh, uh, they arrive at these numbers in the most unbelievable ways I've ever seen. And if they were only a little more reasonable, I think doctors would be uh, less afraid of the events. Uh, it's, it's when you get into these unbelievable numbers that people think that, uh, oh, my God, could that happen to me sort of thing. And what's never put in the paper uh, 
is when they come back and find that it's been reduced to $1.6 million. Correct, correct. <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, that never makes front page headlines uh, in America. In a, um, okay, Rick, let's, let's read one of our letters uh, and talk about Good Samaritan. Well, there's uh, two of them, actually. We got one from George uh, Belkowski in Escanaba. And actually, I know where Escanaba is. It's, uh, you know, every, all these Michiganders hold up their hands whenever they, you know, no, nobody from New York or Pennsylvania holds up their hands when they talk about their state and say, look, there's a thumb kind of thing. Well, anyway, uh, uh, Escanaba is up on the, uh, uh, what do they call that, the Upper Peninsula. It's basically a fairly... Fairly you uncivilized locations where they do a lot of snowmobiling across fields and drink a lot of beer. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Upper Peninsula is about the size of, uh, you know, the middle of New England, and it has 200,000 people at best. Uh, Escanaba is a small town. I lived on an Indian reservation there as a high school junior. Um uh, and it's interesting now. There were poor people then. Now they got an Indian gambling casino, and they don't need us. So what can I tell you? Anyway, Doctor Belkowski uh, says um, they go to emergencies in the hospital, but are not contractually required to do that, and do not bill. And they want to know, therefore, would Good Samaritan cover them? And if not, maybe they ought to uh, bill. Is what one of the things that this doctor is mentioning. So, Greg, tell us a little bit about what, well, doesn't it also depend on state by state? You would probably know Michigan, um, Good Samaritan better than anybody, I would think. Well, in the, see this, there's a difference between out of hospital Good Samaritan and in hospital Good Samaritan. Uh, and as I often point out to people, n since Michigan became a state in 1837, there's never been an action brought against a healthcare professional for stopping at the scene of an accident. It never happened. Why? Because you would be sending such a negative social message from the court system to, to the doctors of the state. Nobody wants to send that message. They can't afford to send that message. Now, in, the in-hospital stuff, there have been a few attempts at this, but you've got to go detail by detail. I'd really like to know what his contract looks like. I want to make sure that it, that it doesn't say you have an obligation to do anything. Um, when you are the only doctor in the hospital and in Escanaba in the middle of the winter at two o'clock in the morning, believe me, you are the only doctor in the hospital. There ought to be a clause in that contract that said, we will respond as would any other staff physician under a good Samaritan basis um, if not required to remain in the emergency department by the activity at that time. So you can't guarantee to be two places at once. And I want to make sure that, that uh, nobody has a clause in their contract that they're guaranteeing they're running to the floor when now you've got an airway problem in, in the emergency department. Don't do that. Secondly, the point we made before is um, if soon as you send a bill, all Good Samaritan is 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 gone. This now just a business relationship, as would any other business relationship be. Third thing is in small hospitals, um, I think the best thing to do when you know something's going wrong is to bring them down to the emergency department where you have equipment, supplies, uh, people who know what they're doing. 
the the floor floor beds in small hospitals uh, are not equipped to handle bad stuff. It's just the way it is. So there's some thoughts. Dr. Belkowski also asks, where should his group stand on mandatory flu shots? The administration wants the group to back their idea for mandatory flu shots while the nurses are opposed. Um, where do we stand? Well, uh, I think that Dr. Belkowski is probably not a subscriber to emergency medical abstracts, which I think is like a spear through my chest. Right. Because I wrote a long thing. We have a number of uh, great abstracts about the uh, mandatory uh, policy for flu shots and how successful some hospitals have been, uh, and they have been detailed in the abstracts. I also wrote an essay on it, which I forwarded to Dr. Belkowski. Uh, it seems to me that this is a no-brainer, that mandatory flu shots are not an unreasonable thing to do, and that there are precedents in that nurses can't work in OB unless they can show that they've been vaccinated against um, uh, rubella. Uh, there are other uh, areas where you have to show that you have uh, some kind of immunity uh, that may require some kind of immunization. There's a big push for uh, people being vaccinated against pertussis now because there's all of these outbreaks being reported. There And there's a fair amount of legal precedent now uh, regarding the uh, ability of the hospital to mandate uh, this. So I would just suggest that Dr. Belkowski take a look at some of the stuff that's been written on this, I, I would think that the ER group would support the administration's um, endeavor to have everybody get their flu shot. And interestingly enough, one of the most successful uh, hospitals that did this was up in Seattle, I believe, and the nurses of all there objected as well. They took it to the Labor Relations Board, and uh, ultimately there was a resolution. So that 98% plus every year uh, get their flu shots and this hospital that has something like uh, you know 7,000 employees. So there are more and more hospitals across the country are adopting this policy. This is not strange and I would think that the uh, ER docs should wear the white hat in this case and support it. Very good. Uh, uh, we thank George for writing in and uh, keep listening. Uh, Darian, any comments? To this, uh, uh, we problem. actually uh, we have uh, a requirement at, at, at Resurrection where I work that we have flu shots, and I think everyone, while there was some disgruntled uh, staff initially, everyone's come to the conclusion that uh, the benefits outweigh any costs, and uh, the vast majority comply. Yeah, well, what we have is uh, if you have a medical reason not to receive the shot, all you got to do is bring in that letter. And, uh, you know, they did have one or two people who had uh, uh, supposed allergies and things like that. Okay, we can deal with that. But we're dealing on a mass screening basis. And uh, if you look at who's in the emergency department these days at big hospitals, there's a lot of immunologically compromised old folks who make it in the door. And uh, it, it's it's what you're con what you're transmitting to the patients, which is the real problem. And uh, people say, well, you know, I don't have the flu; it's okay. That isn't the problem. It's it's the bug you're carrying on you that that you pass to somebody else. Hey, I got another email from Jason Stringer. Actually, I got this I think like a day ago. Uh, he's from Peoria, and he has a doctor in his group who's being named in a lawsuit. 
this doctor was not obligated to uh, help out in this case. It was an airway issue. Somebody who was uh, crashing uh, went on to die, and uh, this doctor has been named, despite the fact that they were not contractually obligated. They didn't bill for the service either. And obviously, we don't know the outcome because this is just starting out, but hopefully the, uh, the right thing will happen here. Uh, because you're right, like this should apply to any other physician in the medical staff who, uh, and you would, you would not, a jury would not want to take the position that uh, uh, to award this person money because a doctor, you know, chose to help out and uh, was not particularly successful. That would be very stifling uh, in terms of it's, it's, it's kind of like it's a good Sam uh, extrapolation. But uh, juries hopefully will not go there because um, this doctor was not obligated. He helped out of the goodness of his heart, and uh, outcome wasn't good. No, no fees were uh, submitted. Anyway. Well, Darian has a uh, background in Illinois law. What do you think, Darian? Well, certainly, if uh, you know, if you're not receiving any reimbursement and it's an emergency situation, uh, you know, no, no court has ever ruled against the physician. But there, it, it becomes more difficult. And I don't know if you've had any experience, Greg, with cases where you go to volunteer at a place and you're still not getting paid for it, but you're going at a scheduled time, and then when it, uh, an occurrence occurs, they expect that you've determined that you have the necessary supplies to treat the patient, and if you don't then, you know, can you be sued? Because while you aren't being reimbursed, you, are as, you aren't strictly acting in an emergency situation, and those cases can get more difficult. So, so I, I, warned, I have a half a dozen. I have a half a dozen of those cases where emergency doctors thought, A, number one, it ain't a problem, and number two, my, my uh, malpractice insurance were co- will cover me, and it didn't. Or right. at least they defended under rights of reservation because in emergency medicine, our policies cover us site-specific, chart-specific, patient-specific. No chart, no coverage. No, not seen in our department, no coverage. And I think that that kind of stuff has to be explained to our membership. Can I tell you a story that I, I – anyway, this is out of the New York Times. It was in the July 18th um, issue. But there was a series of stories written about this really unfortunate case. The boy is uh, 12 years old. He's a student. He's a very, very, very bright kid. He's uh, taking pilot lessons to fly an airplane. His uh, debating teacher at school says, the most profound 12-year-old I've ever met. And so – and this kid was on the student council, very special kid. Um in any case, he was not feeling well. It was a uh, little feverish, a uh, little, little nausea, uh, no diarrhea. Went to the uh, pediatrician, and uh, the pediatrician thought he was a little dehydrated and, and sent the uh, boy over to an emergency department. This is all in New York City. Uh, she had seen him in her office, little fever, little vomiting, weakness, there was also a small cut on his arm that uh, occurred a couple days prior when he was in the gym at his school and he dove after a basketball. The uh, coach put a Band-Aid on it. That was the end of it. He was seen in the ED by a pediatrician who uh, discharged him after a two-hour visit with a diagnosis of – what was the diagnosis, uh, uh, Greg, uh, uh, what was, that was made by the doctor? 
It's acute uh, gastroenteritis, yes, probably. exactly. The diagnosis is gastroenteritis. <laughs> How did we know that? Right. He was treated with two liters of fluid, Zofran, and some labs were drawn. Um, two liters in two hours, pretty aggressive, 12-year-old kid. But anyway, vital signs obtained 12 minutes after his exit writer, aftercare instructions were generated, were printed showing a pulse. Oh, okay. The pulse when he left was 131, his temperature was 102, and his respiratory rate was 22. Uh, the exit writer instructions were written 12 minutes before these vital signs were obtained, indicating that the doctor was fully intending to send the child home. These last set of vital signs, whether the doctor knew them or not, was uh, not known, but they were uh, charted after the exit writer instructions were um, pushed uh, through that computer. He was still sick the next morning. The parents uh, talked to their pediatrician again. She advised alternating Tylenol and Motrin. We know what the literature says about that. Yeah. And uh, because he was still retching, um, uh, she, they called him back, the pediatrician back later. She advised uh, fluids and crackers. And finally, the kid had an episode of diarrhea. And actually, it's interesting to read the story. Uh, they they were thrilled that the kid had diarrhea because that helped confirm that this was a stomach flu that's going around and you get diarrhea with it. So um, they made that made feel everybody feel a little bit better. But the child became progressively extremely weak, a bluish discoloration around his mouth and on his trunk, and he complained about severe pain regarding this cut. The uh, mother called the pediatrician back again and said, quote, unquote, I'm not sure you're getting the picture, doctor. And so the pediatrician advised them going to the uh, back to the emergency department where the child um, was hospitalized and um, died three days later of septic shock. The uh, parents had been assured that the child had a typical stomach bug, and the parents asserted that they were not told about the lab results. Uh, lab results? Oh, yeah, by the way, the lab results came back three hours after the child was discharged, showing a band count five times normal and elevation in his WBC that was substantial. Um, so obviously there's um, some concern about this. The hospital, in response, said they developed a new checklist to ensure that a doctor and nurse have conducted what they call a final review of all critical lab results and patient vital signs before a patient leaves. And... Um, some physicians familiar with the case said emergency physicians need to have an open mind to a broader range of diagnoses. Uh, um, Greg and Darian, this is the uh, principle that Dan Sullivan elaborated a couple of years ago at ASAP when he talked about this idea of an anchoring bias. This is a bias towards a diagnosis and where you're going to about ignore everything else that doesn't fit your biased diagnosis. And uh, this is a great example of that. So subsequently, a consortium of 55 New York hospitals has undertaken a campaign to ag aggressively identify uh, sepsis. So this case is, um, you know, the, this is just in the news as something happening recently. So the medical legal aspects of this case are not, um, th there's been no suit that I, that I know of. But there are a lot of little, little points in this thing about you know, sending people home before you know the results of the lab test you got, the vital signs on discharge, um, uh, not really paying a lot of attention to the referring doctor. 
who sent the kid in in the first time. The family doctor was not sent any of this, this lab test. There was no contact by the emergency department to the family doctor who had sent the child in for some therapy. So there was a lot of things that I think that we have talked about in the past that uh, come up in this case. Well, the other thing you got to remember, Rick, is this is the one case out of, let's say, there are 20 million kids who went to an ER that year who did have gastroenteritis. I mean, before we start whipping this emergency doc to death, remember that they had multiple contacts with the pediatrician. Um, and pediatricians have an anchoring bias, too. They think that nobody's really sick. Uh, you know, when you decide that a, that a, a non-complaining kid just needs more fluid and crackers, um, I, I don't think that's, that's probably not right. But before we start beating everybody up here, uh, if you don't think this couldn't happen in other hospitals in the United States or to one of us, I think that uh, I think you're deluding yourselves. I think that, that this can be difficult. And uh, sometimes it depends on how a kid looks. By the way, if I think they have gastroenteritis or a, a viral syndrome, I get no tests. I don't know how the white count and a band count would make me change what I do on most kids with gastroenteritis. Do you, Rick? Well, um, it is easy to be a Monday morning quarterback. And it's interesting. One of our <laughs> email writers, Matt Weisinger, um, said a couple of things that kind of focus on a case like this. He says, first of all, good job in general. Now, Matt, we didn't need the in general. Just say good job. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. says that we don't give doctors the benefit of the doubt. And, yes, it is much easier to be a Monday morning quarterback. And um, we, the points that you made, Greg, are right on. Um, there is, however, the newspaper even pointed out that in terms of the diagnosis of sepsis, this kid had three of the – uh, criteria. His respiratory rate was up, and um, I don't even know what the criteria are, but they said he had three of them. He came in with two and left with three. Um, you know, and I would be a little suspicious of uh, about 130 pulse in a 12-year-old kid. Um, and this kid has not had it, uh, just basically had this retching when he came in and did had, had no, no diarrhea at his first visit. He was admitted on his second visit. Um, Matt also brings up the point uh, uh, that we should suggest how doctors could have done better in these cases, how their documentation could be uh, better rather than just pointing out what they did wrong. And he also makes this uh, point about the adding the differential diagnosis in the medical decision-making, which uh, we've talked about in the past. You know, some people believe that to get your level five, you have to put down all the diagnoses that you've considered and why they're not likely diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think both you and I, Greg, have uh, kind of agreed that that's kind of a dangerous thing to do because if you put, uh, um, I've considered PE, well, you can consider it, but you have you ruled it out? No, you haven't. Uh, if you make those differential of, I considered uh, an aortic aneurysm, well, you considered it, but you have you ruled it out? No, you haven't. So it's kind of like I'm concerned about putting out this wide differential on every soul who comes in with belly pain, every soul who comes in with chest pain, because the differential is largely going to be the same. So um, I think you and I support this idea, Greg, of not putting down this differential uh, at the, in the medical decision-making part. 
Are you I there? Think there's a, yeah, there's a working diagnosis. Um, there's a working hypothesis that we deal with, but differential diagnosis would be every disease that could be compatible with that particular finding. If you looked up in, in Harrison's textbook of medicine, the number of diseases that have an elevated white count, I bet there's a thousand of them. I, I mean, literally, there's a thousand. You're not going to go through that in the emergency department. We have working diagnoses that we concentrate on and sort of big issues. And there's occasionally a time when you have to say there are no findings compatible with a PE here or it's of low risk uh, from, from my stratification. But you sure as hell can't go through every disease entity to get this thing done. Now, there are some take-home points here. Number one. If it, you don't send anybody home who looks worse than when they came in without some thoughts. I mean, I don't like a pulse rate of 131 in a 12-year-old kid after I've treated him, after I've given him fluid, after I've done this, after I've done that. That probably isn't right. And as a general rule of this program, um, no negative nursing notes or negative inclusion of laboratory data after the time of discharge. I mean, if you thought enough of it to ask the question, send off the test, think enough of it to look at the test. See, that, that is a reasonable criticism of this case, that if you would use that test to make a clinical decision, then maybe you ought to see the test before they go home. Although, to be fair, we don't know all of the details, and since this case was likely to be litigated, uh, we don't want to provide any aiding and abetting here. We just want a fair um, uh, review of of the facts. But it, the outcome was really uh, very un unfortunate. Uh, can I also move along on this list of emails, Gregory? Yes, uh, please. David Esler has been writing uh, moderately frequently, and uh, his most recent writing is actually a little touchy, Greg. He, I know that. Okay, so we're gonna we're we're gonna go there. Um, David is pissed off that the fellow who had the necrotizing fasciitis of his shoulder, um, the um, he lost his case, and this case was brought up at Mel Herbert's um, essentials course two years ago, and people voted on it. And uh, I I didn't know honestly, Greg, that you and um, as Dr. Esler calls it, you were the, the um, orator, and Dr. Hansom was in the case as well. And Dave Talon. Yeah, and, exactly. Handsome Dave. So um, he brought up the point, based on what he knows about this case, and I also voted that this case should have gone to the plaintiff, that um, what happens here uh, when you take on a case where you really, really don't believe on it. Uh, and, and you know, not to get personal here, but he was of the view that this case was pretty slam dunk. And the fact that this uh, doctor got off was d due to artful lawyering and articulate expert witnesses. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't take a case I don't believe in. End of the discussion. Secondly, uh, it wasn't an, a slam dunk case. Everything is slam dunk in retrospect. That's not the way this case was. And Dave Talon knows as much about infectious disease in emergency medicine as anybody in this country. 
and uh, David and I were a fairly formidable pair. Um, and, uh, you know, we got along with the plaintiff's counsel just fine. He just didn't like what we had to say. Um, and I, I think that, uh, again, it's always easy when you know the outcome. And uh, Dave and I pointed that out and pointed out how difficult these cases are to, uh, to decide and how rapidly some of these cases move. I mean, this guy went from being relatively normal to damn near dead in four hours. And it was a, uh, it was a very close call case. Um, I know David's upset about it. David is a, is a friend and a longtime listener and contributor. Uh, but, uh, David, I did what I thought was right at the time. Uh, Michael Golding writes from Sydney, Australia, chief, uh, yeah, he, uh, has a different point of view to, to yours. Uh, a couple months ago, you suggested that one of the ways to get things done when things are kind of, um, problematic with regard to getting a specialist in or some patient admitted or something to that effect is to take the position, uh, come on, do me a favor here, help me out kind of thing. And uh, Michael takes the position, he's the director of an ER down there, that uh, when it comes to tasks uh, that uh, are the job of somebody, that they should be asked to do their job. And it should not be brought down to this personal level uh, when a doctor won't come in or you're asking a nurse to please do me a favor and take an EKG on um, Mr. So-and-so, that in fact his position is to be polite but to be direct. And he takes the position of if you're not going to do it, what needs to be done here, and you're the uh, should be the admitting physician or the consultant that I, that he's going to start taking names and putting stuff down in the chart. In this country, put taking names and putting stuff down in the chart is not going to be recommended uh, at all because uh, we don't want that to be serving as fodder against us should there be uh, lawsuits. And so there is this idea of not putting down these personal um, disagreements in the chart. Uh, you can certainly say Dr. So-and-so was called, case was reviewed, and doctor declines to come in. That doesn't get into any of the nu nuances, reasons, or anything like that. It's just a fact. He declined to come in. Um, your thoughts, Greg? Well, I think actually if uh, Michael and I were working together or having a beer, we would actually be closer on this issue than you could imagine. I mean, I, I am a gentleman. I would like to take a pleasant approach first. Have I ever had to escalate the war? The answer is yes, but that's not the way I want to start out. I like to ask an attending or a consultant, um, Sorry to disturb you, but I need someone with your level of expertise in this problem. Now, what I've just told them is, yeah, I expect them to come in. But, but, but uh, you know, and I'm sure you can be, there's some way of being both polite and direct in Sydney. You can say things like, you know, uh, lad, come in, or I won't put any more shrimp on your bobby. But whatever we do in, in Australia, uh, I agree with him that people ought to do their jobs, but I tend to try and ask them politely first. And that's just sort of my way of doing business. Maybe I'm just too nice a guy, Rick. Uh, I doubt that. Nobody's ever claimed that that was the case with you, the junkyard dog of emergency medicine. Yes. Any what thoughts? can I say? Darian, any thoughts? 
No, only that I, I agree with both of you. You've got to start off being friendly and respectful and let them know of your concerns. But ultimately, if you need them in, you need to be direct and let them know that you expect them. And if they're not going to be there, you let them know that you're going to escalate this to the department chairman or whatever chain of command uh, and give them another opportunity. But I don't use the chart to document this discussion. I use, uh, you know, I, I, I would agree with you, Rick, that in the chart, I would put Dr. Smith declines to come in, so-and-so consulted. Because ultimately, even if somebody declines to come in and you document it, that's not likely to take you off the hook. You're still going to have to do whatever steps you need to take in order to uh, take care of the patient. Go up the ladder, as we know, the chief of staff and the chief of the service, those kinds of things. Yeah, Uh, but but I'd I'd rather – it's faster and better for the patient if I can get the doctor who's his responsibility to do it to come in and get it done. Yeah, I don't and think I'm, anybody's disagreeing with you, uh, Greg, at all. I think yeah. this was just an opportunity to talk about the, the style that this is accomplished. And well, I, in I'm, Chicago I, now, you, you can say, hey, Rom will get you, right? Is, is, <laughs> that's right. There, that's there, a, there, that'll hey. get you anybody in. Right? Yeah, Rom. Rom's going to take care of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ten <laughs> got nothing to do right now. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, but, uh, go ahead. I think we're almost out of time here. Uh, Greg, do you um, do you have any uh, final thoughts? And I'm going to ask the same of Darian regarding uh, what we talked about uh, in this issue. Well, I'm I'm going to run a couple of other things by you on this Good Samaritan law. <clears throat> I don't have too much time now, Chief. Okay, all right. But other countries besides us have looked at this. The Canadian Supreme Court, in the case of uh, Horsley versus uh, McLaren, uh, said straight out. A doctor has no responsibility outside of his work situation to become involved. If they do become involved, then the usual and customary, uh, there's a usual and customary expectation of quality of care. And, and uh, this is one of those cases where, where basically what they're doing is mitigating Good Samaritan, saying if you get involved, do it right. Uh, it certainly doesn't relieve you f- in Canada from gross negligence. There's a recent case in the state of California, which was uh, Van Horn versus uh, Torty, which is a case where Torty and Van Horn were in a car accident. Torty, um, a, a, uh, I believe a physician, saw smoke coming out of the car, fearing it would explode. She dragged her coworker out of the wreck. Now, the co-worker had a C-spine injury. The claim is pulling the patient out of the car caused the injury, uh, caused her to be paraplegic, and knowing what a physician should know, that was gross negligence. And the California Supreme Court um, found Torty liable. Uh, This went back and forth at lower court levels and went to the California Supreme Court. Um, All I can say is, this is, this is evolving law, and uh, each time a, an appellate court makes a decision, uh, the term is stare decise, let, let the previous acts decide until a, an appellate court has made a decision. Now, once they've made a decision, that's new law. This is now new law in the state of California. So it is something to think about and has added an extra duty uh, to physicians. So, um, so don't think that this is a, an open, shut, 
easily done thing. Whenever you involve lawyers in something, it gets more complex. Right, Darian? Absolutely. <laughs> I would definitely <laughs> agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether you've reviewed these cases or not, but but it, it, it is it is problematic. Um, but what basically what I tell everybody is I can't picture anybody, if you in good conscience are trying to help somebody, uh, I, I can't believe you being removed, uh, you know, losing money on the issue. I just can't picture it. I think that's essentially right. And I think, you know, as the as the article shows, uh, you know, physicians successfully defend most suits and they're relatively infrequent. But the reality is that it's a, you know, that there's a lot of suits uh, <clears throat> that we're faced with and it's a cost of doing business. And hopefully you can see it as just part of the cost of doing business. But the uh, the emotional toll is uh, is is dramatic for, for most physicians when they're faced with a suit. Yeah. Even if they can success. A giant meteor is eventually going to hit the earth. But you know what? I got to pay my taxes and pay rent and do everything else. I'm not going to sit around here thinking thing, bad things are going to happen to me. I just, I just can't do it, you know? All right, Greg, uh, wine of the month. We ready for wine of the month already? I think so. Well, I'm going to bring back the old days. Rick, and this is for you nostalgia freaks. We're going to talk about Fess Parker Winery. Who was Fess Parker? Um, the guy with the coonskin cap on, uh, Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Okay, extra credit if you can come up with his sidekick. Um, can't do it. Georgie Russell, uh, and, he, and he went on to be who on TV? The Don't Beverly know. Hillbillies. Yes, okay. So in any event... Fess Parker went into the wine business, um, and, I, and uh, he's gone now, but, but the winery isn't. And the 2010 Chardonnay, uh, again, this is Santa Barbara County, which uh, if there's a nicer-looking county in California, you're going to have to find it for me. Santa Barbara is gorgeous. Um, but they have a, a, a Chardonnay, which, again, ranks with the great, the $55-a-bottle wines, they have an $18 bottle wine, the 2010 Chardonnay, which is considered to be super. Uh, it's readily available. Most wine shops can get Fess Parker. And, uh, you know, when, when you're drinking something that most people couldn't tell that from the stuff down the street that some of it runs to 100 bucks a bottle, I think that uh, Fess Parker, hey, Davey, uh, Davey Crockett, we're going to go with you on this one, and uh, I think it's pretty good. Okay, guys, uh, I think that uh, that's pretty much of a wrap. Uh, Darian, any final thoughts? No, no, thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, as uh, you've pointed out, uh, don't don't worry about the lawsuits. Just do your best to protect yourself from them. <laughs> and, uh, guys, I think we'll be talking to you uh, the November issue coming to you from the uh, Scientific Assembly, uh, ASAP in October. We're going to record that up in, uh, in, Den in Denver. And other than that, I think that is it. So thanks very much to uh, Darian and Greg. Thank you very much as well. And uh, I think we're going to be signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.